Spartans, Dusty Feet Earthquakes and Rebellion. Join me as I try to unwrap the mystery of the helot on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi and welcome, my name's Neil and in this episode I'll be trying to bring some much needed clarity to the subject of the helots. These were the agricultural labourers of Sparta and as you'll hear they were essential to the Spartan state. I'll be examining what the sources said about them and even why we need to weigh these accounts up but I'll also be considering where they came from, what they did, how they did it and how it ended. You can find episode notes on my ancientblogger.com website. These include a reading list with all the sources I've used, a transcription and maps, images and, well, just about anything else which will help you get a bit more out of the episode. And if you're listening to this on a platform where you can give a rating or a review, then please do. For example, Spotify allows you to rate this show and also leave a review for the episode. I know I say it on each episode, but this is crucial for an indie podcaster such as myself. Any spare change I have goes into new books and sometimes upgrading equipment. Marketing is, well, pretty much over to you. It's word of mouth. And if you're a returning listener, thanks. I really appreciate you coming back. And if you're new, well, there's a bit of a back catalogue and I hope you find something else there to listen to. You can find me on Twitter at ancientblogger and at Hound Ancient specifically for this podcast. I'm also on Instagram, YouTube, and even TikTok as Ancient Blogger. It's all ancient history content, by the way. My email is ancientblogger at hotmail.com. You can probably detect a theme going on there. And thanks to those of you who sent in some really nice emails recently. Solo podcasting with a full-time job and other commitments, well, it can get a bit overwhelming at points. So hearing that you're enjoying it, be it a review, rating, or nice email, could be a much needed pickup. Right, with that all done, let's try and answer the riddle of the helot. There's a sadistic coincidence that the helot, a figure which at some points possesses somewhat ambiguous qualities, existed in Sparta. And that's because the Spartans weren't known for their diary keeping or, well, keeping much of anything. So we're met with a challenge of a seemingly non-standard demographic and a very opaque lens to observe them through yet there's still room for us to draw lines between dots and weigh up what we have. I'll start with a certainty, a rarity with the helot, and this concerns where the helot was to be found. I'll put a map up on the episode notes to help, by the way, but we're focused on the southern Peloponnese. Here you have two regions, with the Taygetos mountain chain dividing them. On the eastern side was a region known as Laconia. It was a large river valley with the Eurotus River and the famous city of Sparta. On the western side of the mountains was Messenia, or rather, a region which later became known as Messenia, and I phrase it that way because prior to the 5th century BC, it's not exactly clear what it had been called. We first meet a city called Messenia in Homer's Odyssey when a young Odysseus travelled there to collect a debt. Apparently, men from Messenia had nicked around 300 sheep from Ithaca, and it was in Messenia that Odysseus received the bow he became famous for, but in this context, Messenia isn't a region. It was a city. This has caused a bit of head-scratching because there was a city called Messini which was built much later on and which I'll mention. Recent work has identified a possible site which might have been the original Messini. In any case, I'll refer to the region in this episode as Messenia, 
just to keep things simple. The combined area of Messenia and Laconia is estimated to have been around 8,500 kilometres squared, and that's with a caveat of the exact boundaries not being fully known. And that's no small amount of land. Attica, the region which Athens controlled, was around 2,500 kilometres squared. Just to give some perspective, if the land area the Spartans controlled was a state in the US, it would come in at 49th in terms of size a bit bigger than Delaware and twice the size of Rhode Island. What this gave the Spartan state was between 115,000 and 145,000 hectares of farmable land, according to one estimate. This land was divided into Cleroy, the estates the Spartan citizens owned, and upon which the helots worked. It's easy to forget how crucial agriculture was. A poor harvest could have dramatic consequences. Having good arable land and lots of it gave any city-state a distinct advantage. And it was in these two regions of the southern Peloponnese where we found the Hela, and specifically working on those Claroi or estates. The next question is, how Sparta acquired the Helots? Well, this seems a bit easy to answer in the case of Messenia, or rather, I should say we at least have something more tangible to consider. These are the so-called Messenian Wars, where it's been argued that Sparta invaded the region and subdued it. We have a source, a Spartan poet by the name of Tataeus of the 7th century BC. He commented that King Theopompus had fought a 20-year war and finally won. Following this, the Messenians now had to give up half their farm crop to Sparta and take part in mourning for senior Spartans. Certainly the first comment reflects a characteristic of helotry, namely that helots created produce for their Spartan masters. However, Tataeus did not use the word helot, though with that said, we don't have much of his work which has survived. Later sources, such as Ephorus in the 4th century BC, supplied a more complex narrative involving uprisings, civil tension, with ultimately the same result, military conquest of Messenia by Sparta. However, there's little we actually know of the mechanics to it all. Did Sparta fight against a singular entity, or was this really a gradual absorption of parts of Messenia over time? We just don't know. But what the sources offer up is that Sparta had acquired Messenia by force. Exactly how you get from that point to a subjugated population work in the land is left a guesswork. The often cited conclusion that suddenly the conquered people were turned into helots Well, it's not as practical as it sounds, but as I said, we don't have much in the way of evidence to help us draw more detailed conclusions. Messenia wasn't the only place where we find helots. There were Laconian helots as well. The notion of Laconian helots might seem almost counterintuitive. If the Messenian helots had been sourced through the conquering of their lands, as was understood at the time, how did they explain the Laconian ones? Antiochus of Syracuse, who dated to the late 5th century BC, provided an account which neatly linked both Laconia and Messenia. Prior to the invasion of Messenia by the Spartans, there had been a refusal by some in Laconia to join, and as a consequence, they paid with their freedom. Where in Messenia there had been a theme of conquest resulting in the helots, in Laconia it was one of rebellion. The account of Ephorus is a good example of this. When Laconia had been divided up into six districts, one eventually rebelled. The city in the district was called Helos or Helos. The population was reduced to slavery. Helos was a place, as I mentioned, in Laconia, and Ephorus wasn't the only one to try and link the word helot and helos. For example, Pausanias did so as well. 
Others tied the name to the verb meaning to take or seize. However, modern linguistic analysis has put pay to the idea of helos being the origin for helot. Though they sound the same, they are not related in any way. But it's a good example of the later sources seeing a possible link and then creating a backstory for it. In case you wonder where the word came from, it's been suggested that it was originally a localized variation of a word which meant slave or similar, and then became the designated term. We've got our own version of this. Apparently, the word slave is derived from the word slav. These were a people who were forced in large numbers into slavery in the Middle Ages, and as such, they so became associated with slavery that their name became the word used for it. Before I move on, there is one final theory about how the helots came to be, which I find very tempting. Rather than the helot resulting from conquest, the helot was just well a common demographic in the archaic period. In the early sixth century BC, Athens experienced a crisis involving its tenant farmers. Many of which were in a type of debt slavery, where they were now effectively owned by the landowner. In theory, they could pay their debt off, but many were trapped in an existence of worker tied to the land and obliged to the landowner. In Athens, this had been solved through the reforms of Solon. What's argued is that this reform never happened in Sparta. The poor tenant farmer who was locked into an existence of working off an impossible debt remained as just that. This was, or became, the helot. An advantage this argument has is that it doesn't oppose the idea that Messenia was conquered by Sparta. This could have been a situation across both regions, and without a political reform as such, like the one at Athens, they just became full-time indebted farm workers. This brings me neatly, somewhat, to the social structure of Sparta of the fifth century BC, which I'll briefly cover before moving into the topics of what the helots did and how they lived. At the top of the social and political pyramid were the Spartiates. These were the elite male citizens who had all the power. Being a Spartiate wasn't about being born one, though. An essential requirement was a contribution you made to your sicitia, which has been translated as something approaching a military mess. It was a group which you belonged to, where you spent most of your time and where you ate. In order to become a Spartiate, you needed to qualify to join the sicitia. And one of the requirements was that you could contribute to it from your kleros, your estate, and this was an ongoing requirement. If at any point you were unable to keep up the contributions, your membership was void. You were out, and therefore you were no longer a spartier. It's important to note that helots were therefore vital for these elite citizens, and this perhaps why they occupied the Spartan mindset and why Sparta was so concerned about them. Spartiates were by far the minority in Sparta. Estimates are always very, very tricky, but numbers have been calculated using the kleroi, those estates. From these, it has been estimated what it could have supported, and one figure is that there were in total eight to nine thousand Spartiates in the early fifth century BC. The number of helots, however, is given at between sixty to seventy thousand, with other figures as high as a hundred and eighteen thousand. The helots sat under the Spartiates alongside another group, the wonderfully named Perioikoi. This translates as something close to dwellers around, and this group, also subservient, were the merchants, the craftsmen, and the well, pretty much everything else. Thucydides gave a great example of this when he recorded how the Perioikoi effectively ran an island called Kythera, which was just off the coast of Sparta. This island had a harbour which acted as a main trading hub. A Spartan garrison was present to keep an eye on things, but 
the perioikoi managed pretty much everything else. Now, I appreciate that this is a very basic overview of Sparta. For example, I haven't mentioned the ephors. But what we are seeing are elite citizens, the Spartia, and the somewhat ambiguous perioikoi, and of course, the helots. When it comes to what a helot could do, we have very limited source material to go on, but we do have some basics to build a picture. As you've heard, they more or less exclusively worked on the estates and supplied the agricultural produce for themselves and for the estate owner, who would have been a Spartan citizen. Helots could marry, and in fact this was probably encouraged, as this meant an ever-renewing resource of workers. A child from a union between a Spartan man and a helot woman was a mothax. This was a lower-class Spartan citizen. A mothax was free and raised as part of the Spartan's family. Gylippus and Lysander, both famous Spartan generals, were said to have been a mothax. Now, helots have been referred to as slaves. But this classification, well, it's not an easy fit. For example, slaves were generally commodities to be sold as and when. Helots couldn't be sold outside Sparta. And whilst they may have been traded within it, the likelihood is that they stayed on the estates for as long as the estate functioned. After all, it would be best to have a helot working on land that they knew very well. But in many ways, the helot did tick the box as a slave. First and foremost, they weren't free and as a population, they were under strict supervision. Perhaps what's required is a nuanced category for the helot. In the modern period, they've been seen as an early form of the serf, a type of worker who's indebted to a lord and supplied labour to him. Though serfs and serfdom were a widespread thing in later history, helots have been considered a unique type. But closer inspection reveals that this may have not been the case and there is evidence for other groups who seem to operate as a type of serf or helot in much the same way elsewhere in ancient Greece. In Thessaly, there were the Peneste, agricultural workers who could also serve in the army and who were compared to helots in antiquity. Likewise, a people in Crete who worked on estates and who couldn't be sold abroad, and interestingly, they could also marry citizen women. Plutarch mentioned the people who worked outside Epidaurus in central Greece and on the farms. They were named conipodes, which translates as dusty feet, as they were easily recognised by their dusty feet when they visited the city. Beating the conipodes in the name game were the gumnites or gumnistoi, or naked people of Argus. Finally, there were the meriandinians of Heraclea on the Black Sea, Aristotle and Plato reported how they cultivated the land, served in the army, but were excluded from citizenship. With this in mind, it's more plausible that helots weren't a unique demographic in ancient Greece. They were simply the most famous. Some of the examples I just mentioned involved military service as part of what they did, and this is also true of the helot. Exactly what they did isn't clear. An obvious thought is that they performed the duties akin to that of a squire who served a knight. However, they may well have fought as lightly armed infantry. At the Battle of Plataea in 479 BC, Herodotus described how each of the Spartiates was accompanied by seven lightly armed helots. There were 5,000 Spartiates that day on the field, and it's difficult to think of the 35,000 helots not being involved in the fighting in some capacity. The topic of warfare is something which I'll be discussing later, but the main role of the helot, as mentioned, was the agricultural labourer. But here we meet an enduring question. How were the helots overseen in their daily roles? 
The clare upon which they worked weren't novelty allotments for the village fair. They were crucial. As previously mentioned, a Spartiate whose Kleros failed to provide the necessary produce could lose membership to his Sicitia. It almost seems nonsensical that you'd trust the keys to your elite status to those who you were actively oppressing. In Laconia, we could suppose that the possibility of a surprise inspection kept helots on their toes, given that this was the region where Sparta was located and where the Spartiates would have been active. The furthest Claroi may have been up to 30 kilometres, 18 miles, to the south, a plausible trip, and there's also the sense fostered that Laconia had a more loyal helot base, or at least those who understood their responsibilities and accepted their situation, even if they weren't happy. It's easy to project a modern heroic film narrative backwards and question why they didn't rebel, but I suspect the reality made this a far more difficult thing. I'm not sure I'd have the courage to have rebelled back then. I don't know, perhaps you might have done. I suspect many wouldn't. But Messini was different. The Claroy in the west could be as far as 70 kilometres, 43 miles, and this also involved in going over the mountains or through a pass. This was a very different proposition. The logical assumption would be that Spartans either trusted the helots completely or had a system which contained a mix of goodwill from the helots and some supervision. This leads me to a word I've dreaded saying, so apologies for my pronunciation, Manoi-Manoi. It's argued that this word translates as leaders of the helots, and it's posited that here we have some hierarchy which provided that level of oversight. If we didn't have this word available, I'd expect there to be a case made for such a position, and it also aligns with the survey work done in Messenia. According to the Pilos Regional Archaeological Project, the Helot communities which worked on the Chloro there were grouped communities. The picture we get is not of scattered communities, but of large centralised farmsteads supporting communities, in one instance the size of which was estimated to have been at least four figures. Some level of what is neatly termed differential prosperity has been found in Messenia and in fact Laconia. One helot location even revealed some imported pottery. What we may have in Messenia is something akin to the Spartan carrot, not just the stick. Helot families might do better for themselves if they worked and lived in accordance with expectations. Creating such a hierarchy benefited the Spartans because it meant that they could exert a better level of control. They had the leading helots to keep everyone in check, and if one failed to do so, the rewards, perhaps freedom from military service or just a better standard of living, would certainly appeal and attract the interest of others to step up and take their place. A similar archaeological project was undertaken in Laconia, called the Laconia Survey. The notable contrast was that in Laconia the estates, or rather the helot communities, were scattered and they didn't form those large communities. If we think of those more structured communities in Messenia as an enhanced form of control, then it might have been that these just weren't needed in Laconia. Helots there perhaps realised that a Spartan force could be upon them far quicker, and this, as well as possible incentives, kept them controlled. How then were Helots treated, and how were they controlled? Thucydides reported a horrific action undertaken by Sparta against its Helots. Following a defeat at Pylos, which I'll come to shortly, Sparta put out a proclamation asking for those helots who thought they'd serve Sparta best on the battlefield to come forward and receive freedom. 2,000 helots were said to have responded to the call, and these were executed. 
Thucydides fails to explain exactly how this happened, and it's easy to see it as just an anti-Spartan tale. But it's not unbelievable. There is, after all, a horrible logic to it all. Sparta at the time was really concerned that the helots would rebel, and those who had military experience would pose the most danger. So why not find a way to identify them, and it would also reveal those who fancied taking a grab at their freedom. In one fell swoop, Sparta could be rid of potential troublemakers with the capacity to make real trouble. Elsewhere, Sparta had helot controls built into its social apparatus. Each year, the ephors at Sparta declared war on the helots. It might have been more of a token exercise, though, rather than an actual war. It reminded the Spartan states of their rightful dominance, but as Aristotle noted, it might have also allowed for the killing of helots without the risk of pollution, something that ancient Greece always feared. And then there was the Cryptia, an organisation of young Spartiates who were chosen by virtue of their cunning. The tradition was that members would act as a sort of intelligence service, keeping the helots in check and dispatching any which were seen as possibly dangerous. On a lighter note, Plutarch recorded how the Spartans would make the helots drink wine and then exhibit them drunk to warn of the dangers of excess. However, the caveat with Plutarch here is that he was happy to record things about the Spartans which he wasn't often sure about, and many centuries later, but again, it's not exactly an incredulous idea. A final check may lie with another group residing in Sparta, the Perioikoi. It's been argued that, particularly in Messenia, the settlements of the Perioikoi acted as buffers between the borders and kept an eye on the helots. Perhaps some acted in place of the helots' supervisor on an estate. I'm not going to try and say the word again. Or they acted on behalf of a Spartan watching the helot supervisor on his estate. I make this link here between the Perioiko and the helots because I'm going to turn to one infamous event in Spartan and helot history, the rebellion of 464 BC. This doesn't seem to have been a planned uprising, more of an opportunistic one. In 464 BC there was a large earthquake which is thought to have caused widespread damage in Messenia. The local helot population, or at least some of them, rebelled and took a fortified position on Mount Ethome. Thucydides mentioned that some of the Perioikoi settlements had also joined in, and here we meet that point I made a few moments ago about the Perioikoi exerting some form of control over the helots, and when there wasn't that control, the helots could rise up. The earthquake and the helot revolt was to have huge implications for Sparta and for the rest of Greece. In the case of Sparta, well, it was their greatest fear come true. Worse still was that the helots couldn't be winkled out of their fort on Mount Ethome. The ancient Greeks weren't well versed in siege warfare. At this point, there weren't siege towers or large catapults available to them. Warfare tended to be seasonal, and on the rare occurrence of a siege-type event, the tactic was often to encircle the city and wait it out, or hope that someone inside the city would betray it. The Athenians sprang into action and under Cimon, a leading politician of the day, sent a force of around 4,000 hoplites to aid Sparta in the siege. Cimon was very pro-Spartan and what better way to show continued support than to help out and put this nonsense to rest. But Sparta snubbed the offer and sent the Athenians home. Thucydides' account of this concluded that the Spartans were worried that the longer the Athenian force spent time around Ethome, the stronger the chance that it might change its mind and in fact support the helots. Thucydides commented that this was the first open quarrel between Sparta and Athens and it had many consequences. The immediate one was that Athens allied with Argus, 
Sparta's bitterest enemy, and it also brought down Cimon and his pro-Spartan faction at Athens. Replacing Cimon was Ephialtes, who was very pro-democracy and anti-Spartan. Incidentally, he pushed through reforms which democratised Athens even further, and alongside him was a chap you may have heard of, a politician called Pericles. The Helots lasted years within the safety of their fort and eventually only left when Sparta offered terms which involved their leaving and promising never to return. They were rehomed by the Athenians in the city of Norpactia on the Corinthian Gulf. In 421 BC, this city dedicated a statue of Nike, the goddess of victory, in front of the Temple of Zeus at Olympia. Known as the Nike of Paeonios, it stood on a tall column and must have been seen by the thousands who attended the sanctuary. Any Spartan may have given it a wide berth because the inscription on the column explained that this was dedicated by the Norpactians and Messenians from the spoils won over their enemies. The victory mentioned here doesn't seem to have been the rebellion against Sparta. Instead, it probably referred to a much more recent victory and one which again was the stuff of Spartan nightmares, but it also involved helots in a slightly different way. In 425 BC, Sparta and Athens were at war, the famous Peloponnesian War, technically the Second Peloponnesian War, and one which Thucydides wrote a history of. The action took place on the island of Sphacteria, off the west coast of Messenia. A Spartan force on the island had been blockaded by the Athenian navy. However, attempts to starve out the Spartans wasn't proving that successful, and according to Thucydides, this was due to the local helots breaking the blockade in small boats, or swimming across the bay carrying supplies. Thucydides didn't seem able to reconcile this. Why would Helots wish to help the Spartans? According to him, it was the promise of money and freedom, but it's unclear if this was generally the case. For example, how would either work? In fact, if this was true, then it raises even more questions, one being, what did a Helot spend money on? And presumably, this couldn't have been money as coinage at Sparta wasn't something in place. Perhaps it was true, but perhaps this was Thucydides trying to avoid the awkward notion of some form of helot loyalty. It's also plausible that the helots weren't helping the Spartans out of any sense of duty. Instead, they feared the common outcome for a commoner in times of war when a foreign power invades, namely indiscriminate killing and destruction of farms. And it would, of course, be the helot who would be in the front line. Athens eventually succeeded in taking the island, and the capture of Spartan soldiers left a hairline fracture in the reputation Sparta had for its military. And of course, now there was an opportunity for the Athenian base on the island to rouse helots to leave, possibly employing the Messenians from more Pactia, either directly or just utilising their knowledge of the land. Though Sparta and her allies won the Peloponnesian War, it had placed a huge drain on the numbers of Spartiates it had. The inflexibility of the Spartan system to admit new members had always been an issue and continued to be a big problem. It's some irony that the social system Sparta had, geared for war as we are told, was very inefficient at dealing with wartime attrition. Yet Sparta could mobilise helots, albeit in a slightly different way. In 424 BC we meet the Neodemodes, helots who could earn their freedom through military service. These were first employed by the general Brasidas, who recruited 700 of them to take north on campaign. Following their service, they were settled at Leprion on the Spartan border. This doesn't seem to have been a random choice of location. Leprion was on the border with Elis and disputed. 
You can either see it as a good place to have veteran soldiers or somewhere that a recently freed set of helots with military service might cause the least trouble to Sparta. After the Peloponnesian War, this policy continued. When the general Thebron took 5,000 troops to fight Persia in Ionia, his force contained 1,000 soldiers described by Xenophon as emancipated helots. Offering helots freedom through military service may have been both a practical military policy, but it could have value as a social valve. It was the possibility of freedom at a huge price for a helot, but it was better than nothing. As an added bonus, it might have appealed to the type of helot who would consider taking up arms. In a sense, get them fighting for Sparta before they get any silly ideas. The threat, however, still remained as always probably had, and the threat of helots rebelling took on a different hue with a conspiracy around 400 BC. It was led by a character called Kinodon, who seems to have been Spartan but certainly not from the elite class. And the account, solely from Xenophon, is that given by an informer who Kinodon confided in and was ultimately betrayed by. The stuff of nightmares for any Spartan was embodied by a sojourn between Kinodon and the informer, who Kinodon thought, as you'd expect, was an ally of his. Walking around the market, Kinodon asked him to count the number of Spartiates he could see. The informant replied, 40. Kinodon replied that these were the enemy, and that the allies at the market numbered over 4,000. The implication was that it was the Spartiates versus pretty much everyone else, and this included the Helots. Kinodon even referred to them on the estates, and again pointed out their numbers versus those of the enemy. It wasn't just the Helots then, it was the Perioikoi and even other Spartans who weren't Spartiates. The numbers may have been scary and picked at the seam of the big nightmare for the Spartan state, but what came next was chilling. Kinodon commented that amongst those groups, the hatred of the Spartiates was strong. In fact, when you mentioned a Spartiate to them, they could barely conceal that they would happily eat a Spartiate raw. We only have Xenophon's account of this, and Xenophon was, well, not objective. So perhaps a pinch of salt or two are needed, and not just for seasoning. Xenophon was hugely pro-Spartan, so perhaps this account went some way to justify the means which Sparta used to keep its population and the helots under control. But we have to consider that it could have been true, perhaps exaggerated after all the account was Kinodon trying to recruit the eventual informer to his side. What it certainly does is provide a near-perfect sketch of the Spartan boogeyman, the sort of thing which Sparta feared the most. Though Sparta feared the enemy within, the real danger sat far from their borders. The early 4th century BC was a mishmash of alliances and squabbles amongst the city-states of Greece. This eventually resulted in a war for Sparta, and in 371 it suffered a devastating defeat at Leuctra to Thebes. This ended Sparta as a military power, and the roll call of the dead underlined how weakened it had become. Sparta fielded 10,000 infantry, and 1,000 cavalry, made up mostly of its allies. The force only contained 700 Spartiates, and if that seems few, well, consider that it's estimated that there were only a pool of 1,000 remaining. Of these, 400 were killed. In a day, Sparta lost over a third of its precious Spartiates. This didn't just have military consequences. The Spartiates were those with political power, And on that very theme, Sparta lost one of its kings. And this was the first time a king had died in battle since Leonidas at Thermopylae. 
This defeat is considered as the end of the Spartan state as it was. Though it continued to operate, it was only a bare shadow of its former self. But the battle was only the first part. Worse was to come. A Theban army moved south, the Perioikoi now happy to defect. Thebans waltzed past the city of Sparta and headed south to Githium, where they burned its docks. They then went past it again. Perhaps the ultimate insult was that taking Sparta was now irrelevant, it was a redundant action, and instead the Theban army, under the famed general Epaminondas, headed westwards over the Tegetus mountain range and into Messenia. Sparta had issued a proclamation that any helot who wanted their freedom could earn it with a spear in hand, and Xenophon reported that this drew in 6,000 volunteers. However, we have to be very careful with Xenophon, as he was, as mentioned, very biased towards Sparta, and perhaps this was an exaggeration or invention. But as ever, I should counter this point. Perhaps it was true, because those helots who volunteered were, as I mentioned earlier, taking up arms because they feared the Thebans and what they might do to their farmlands and their families. What Thebes did do was the opposite of what the helots may have feared. They freed them, or at least they freed the helots of Messenia. To add insult to injury, Epaminondas had a city built on Mount Ethome called Messini. It had a circuit of nine kilometres of walls, and Messenians from all over Greece and even from North Africa returned to it. For the Helots in Laconia, things were never the same. The whole social structure had been reduced to gaps. We know that Helots still work there, as there is mention of them when the general Pyrrhus passed through. But given their main function, it's easy to see how they were now even more invisible. And likewise, Sparta, the once great city-state, faded into obscurity. The 3rd and 2nd centuries BC witnessed a sort of tribute act, rebrands and relaunches, but time had passed, and perhaps most crucially, Sparta lacked Messenia and its fertile lands. The establishment of Messenia in 369 BC brought with it a new fascination of the Hela, and some of the sources of this time, such as Ephorus, wrestled with how it had all come about. It's interesting that the sources from earlier, the likes of Thucydides, Herodotus and Tertius, didn't concern themselves with this. Perhaps for them the helot was a thing like many other things which just didn't need explaining and weren't that important. In the 4th century BC you have an understandable shift in the context of interest about the helot. It's been argued that the 4th century BC was when the backstory of the helot and the Mycenaean identity were invented. This creates an issue when trying to understand the helot. Sources in the 4th century BC and later may pick up on what they knew of the helot in their own times and reasoned that this was always as it had been. I go back to the example of the sources trying to link helos and helot because, well, it sounded the same so there had to be a link. This was added to in the later centuries. Pausanias, another source who dated to the 2nd century AD, may have incorporated versions of the helot which existed in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC in his works. So with all this considered, we have lots of opinions and ideas, and possibly some using sources we don't know of, but what's missing is something concrete from the archaic period, or even a discussion of the helot from the classical one that goes into any depth about where they came from, what they did, you know, the sort of details we need. And there's always the hope that perhaps one day something will be discovered which will fill those gaps. And on that hopeful note, I come to the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. I don't know if people generally listen to this end bit. After all, you're probably just lining up your next podcast. But in any case, thanks again for listening. 
And if you get the chance to rate or review, please do. More importantly, though, take care of yourself. And until next time, stay well.